convertible 1969 gold Cadillac with the white material oh, and I drove it up here. And I started to do some thinking. around in it on the freeway and I'm having a really, really good time. Flat black classic. Smoking big spliffs and cruising Saturday noon to two. On the freeway. Good feeling. I am a total Hello, Blake. Henry! Yeah, Charlie here. Yeah. I have a report here, Henry, from your, uh, from your chief nurse, Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe. Uh, the dude minds, man. Well, it's Labor and Love Radio, but we're not getting any uh, cooperation. Let's listen to Stevie uh, Snow.
Just can't keep from crying sometimes. Well, I just can't keep from crying sometimes. When my heart's filled with sorrow and my eyes filled with tears, Lord, I just can't keep from crying sometimes. My mother often told me, Angel bondage of life. Said I would have come, but the trust in God and pray. I'm on the King's Highway, I'm trusting Him every day, but I just can't keep from crying sometimes. 
like Ruby on YouTube. Mike Fiegelman and Carl. Hi, Carl. Hey, Mike. Good to hear your voice. Good to be on L. Okay, this is Labor and Love Radio. Never a dull moment around here. Welcome. Trying to get to uh, play some music here for you. That was Phoebe uh, Snow. Okay, Phoebe Snow just celebrated a birthday uh, this past week. And she started out with uh, D- Dylan's classic takes a lot to laugh. It takes a train to cry. Um, a couple other ones. Last one was very bluesy. Phoebe Snow died uh, in 2011 after causing having a huge hit called The Poetry Man. This is The Bee, and it's Labor and Love Radio. And uh, this is where we tell you how it is. This is where we tell you that if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. We tell you, if you don't have a seat at the table, at the negotiating table where you work, you're on the menu. You've probably been laid off. 20 million people, one out of every five American workers. Makes you wonder about capitalism, doesn't it? I hope so. And never, we say never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. No wonder they don't want you to have unions. Your work makes them rich. Your work, let's say that over again. Your work makes them rich. Look at some of our credos that we share on this show also. basis of what we believe here on Labor and Love. We're going to have a couple people calling in. So you're not just stuck with my opinions. Um, 
might get in our credos. Can I tell you a secret? I don't even care if they're undocumented immigrants in this country. Without Social Security numbers, they aren't privy to the welfare people claim they get. The vast majority of them are normal people trying to live a better life. This whole wall deport the illegals bullshit is just the 1% convincing the working poor to blame a subset of the working poor for the fact that they're all poor. Instead of realizing the reason they're all poor is due to the vast income inequality. Jeff Bezos made $13 billion in one day last week. Great uh, investment banks are making billions of dollars. Over $500 billion has passed to the upper 1% during this virus. It's not a virus for everybody, huh? Some people are getting rich. Use your brains, we continue. Use your brains. The existence of another poor person is not why you're poor. It's because the people who control everything don't increase your wages. Okay. You're, you're poor because you're not getting paid enough. Somebody who's paying you is not paying you enough to live on. Here's Utah Phillips. Kids don't have a little brother working in the coal mine. They don't have a little sister coughing her lungs out in the looms of the big mill towns of the North Northeast. Why? Because we organized. We broke the back of the sweatshops in this country. We have child labor laws. Those were not benevolent gifts from enlightened management. They were fought for, they were bled for, they were died for by working people, by people like us. Kids ought to know that. That's why I sing these songs. That's why I tell these stories, damn it. No root, no fruit. Oh, you're not that into politics, huh? Your boss is. Your landlord is. Your insurance company is. And every day they use their political power to keep your pay low, raise your rent, and deny you coverage. It's time to get into politics. Maybe, you think, huh? Another one of our credos. So let me get this right, a woman says, a working woman says. I'm not allowed to get an abortion because I didn't realize I was pregnant till six weeks. 
not allowed to get my tubes tied to pre prevent any more pregnancies because, once again, it has to be someone else's rules what I do with my body. Cut funding to Planned Parenthood. So now I can no longer get the cheap birth control to prevent a pregnancy. Not all insurance covers birth control. And funding to CHIP, WIC, and food assistance, cut that funding to make it harder for single mothers to take care of the babies they were forced to have. I think I've got it. Government can't tell you what guns you can own because that's violating your rights as an American citizen. But it's totally okay for them to tell me what I can and can't do with my own body my rights aren't being violated because my rights as a woman just aren't that important. All too true. Let's see what we got here at the top. Here's one. When the penalty for aborting after a rape is more severe than the penalty for the rape, that's when you know it's a war on women. Well spoken, huh? All right. Sort of stuck here today. Um, did I just lose everything? I think I did. Um, this is the Labor and Love Show, and I'm coming at you from 2781 21st Street in San Francisco. And, uh, having some trouble here. Let's see if we can get some music up here. Phones aren't working. Give us justice by the three sacred souls.
Okay, we're back. Uh, trying to get some satisfaction from our uh, microphones here. Hopefully you can hear us okay. I wanted to start out today talking about uh, working women and how they are harassed. And we had a... Uh, perfect example of that, of what, what women go through uh, every day, what working women go through every day. And the example was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, which uh, you've probably heard, was confronted by another congressperson, a guy from Mississippi, and um, called, she, he called her a name, he called her a fucking bitch, pardon, pardon the expression, I'm not sure if I can say that on live, <laughs> on, uh, let's see if we can get Cortez. And her brave statement before Congress. Now we're not getting any sound at all, but the basis of her speech was that this man had uh, covered up his, tried to cover up and, and sidestep all this controversy by saying that he's a, a man too and a married man and he's got two daughters and Ocasio-Cortez countered with a statement that Just a moment, please. me on television and I am here because I have to show my parents that I am their daughter and that they did not wait to accept abuse from men. Having a daughter does not make a man decent. Having a wife does not make a decent man. Treating people with dignity and respect makes a decent man. 
tries his best and does apologize. Damn, this is why we love her. I love that she called that out. So many times there are Republican and Democratic male lawmakers who use the fact that they have daughters, they have a mom, they have a wife, they once sniffed the perfume of a lady on the subway as a reasoning behind why they support certain policies where you could just say, I'm a human being and I'm supporting other human beings or just having empathy. You don't need to have a direct connection with a woman to support policies that you say are in favor of women. But in the case of Ted Yoho, again, I cannot believe that that's his name, he was using it as a shield to protect himself from accusations of misogyny and sexism, which were clear in his horrific confrontation with Ocasio-Cortez, which he didn't really apologize for. That's why uh, Ocasio-Cortez, other progressive lawmakers who, who stood in support of her, like Pramila Jayapal, why they were continuing to hammer the point home. Because he apologized for his, quote, passion, or he said he wouldn't apologize for his passion, uh, but apologize for the abrupt manner of the conversation, which is really one way to talk about workplace harassment of a sexist nature. Uh, he used a sexist slur, and what he did in their place of work is abusive, straight up. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says she never had a conversation with Representative Ted Yoho before Monday when the Florida Republican reportedly accosted her on the steps of the U.S. Capitol. The freshman Democrat from New York said that Yoho, who was exiting the Capitol with Representative Roger Williams, suddenly flew into a rage. I was walking up the Capitol steps to vote when Representatives Yoho and Williams came around the corner of the second flight. Ocasio-Cortez recalled Tuesday speaking to Yahoo News via Twitter direct messages. When I pass other members on the steps, regardless of party, I usually nod or say hello if I'm able. Out of nowhere, Yoho comes up to me and puts his finger in my face and flies off in a rage. He started going off about shootings and bread and nonsense, calling me crazy, shameful, out of my mind, etc. At first I tried to talk to him, but that just made him yell over me more, she continued. Williams then started joining in, yelling things at me, and then said something about throwing urine. I don't know what that was about. I said he was being rude, and that was, uh, and that this was unbelievable, and started to walk away. According to The Hill, which first reported the incident, Yoho called Ocasio-Cortez an epic bitch as he walked away. A spokesman for Yoho denied the report. By the way, all of this was because she had the temerity to connect an increase in crime in New York to an increase in poverty. And that set Republicans into a rage, set him into a rage, so that he accosted her in their place of work. Look, Ocasio-Cortez AOC, she's strong. She'll be fine. And she also is immensely powerful. elements of our culture I've seen in a long time, and it's 
trickled down to Republicans like Ted Yoho. And that's what set him off there. And it's all of this stew within Republicans who don't want to see this kind of change. They're like, they find her attractive, and she's also Latino, and she's also strong, and, and, and they, they just hate her, and that rage just boils inside of them. And that's misogyny. So I'm glad that she stood up for herself because less powerful people will have this happen to them in their workplaces. But now they have an advocate on the floor of the House who's calling this out and calling it like it is. Okay, so that's the skinny on Ocasio-Cortez, and that's her response. She stood up in Congress and answered the guy. Called him out. He, as commentator said, he never did apologize for what he'd said to her. He said he wasn't going to apologize for his passion. His passion flew. Everything is everything. You know that argument? Everything is everything, so nothing is nothing. And it really didn't happen. What's your big problem? His idea was this. <laughs> so, Casio Cortez stands up. Stands up for women. And as she says, as this commentator says, this thing happens to women all the time. Harassment on the job. And now they have a spokesperson in the Congress, Ocasio-Cortez. Jeff Bezos now has roughly $189 billion. The average American yearly income is 32000 How long would it take an average worker to make the amount Bezos has? Five point million years. So yeah, someday you'll be rich. Just hang around for 5.9 million years and you'll be fine. <laughs> okay, we're going to talk today about uh, Chicanos and the presence in California from before the time that the first whites came. And w something happened now, okay? Those people who once were, those people who once were the regular citizens of California all of a sudden became became the oppressed, became the underclass, became the, the uh, working class. And um, this article is, let's see if we can get it. Looks like asking me to, um, what is a Chicano and what do Chicanos want? 
This is the classic question I can remember in the 50s and 40s. Um, what does the what does the Negro want? What does a Negro want? Okay, what what is what does the Chicano want? And this article is titled "Chicano or Chicana is a Chosen Identity." People who are citizens of California, but who proud of their Mexican-ness. Okay. The culture of the Chicano and Mexi Mexicano people goes back to the Indian peoples before an era of slavery and Spanish colonizers. Mestizo culture, part Spanish and part Indian, grew out of the developing feudal era of the 17th and 18th century. In the 1940s and 50s, prior to the Chicano movement, Chicano, Chicana, was widely used as a classist term of derision. Chicano, Chicana was widely reclaimed in the 1960s and 70s to express political empowerment ethnic solidarity, and pride in being of indigenous descent. So this new thing, Indian Maya, Indian root, everyone wants to deny their Indianness. Chicanos are proud of their Many Chicano, Chicana youth in barrios rejected cultural assimilation into whiteness and embraced Pachuco Pochuca, Cholo Chola identities as countercultural symbols of resistance. Like the Mississippian black movements organized, the Chicano movement was surveilled. government, such as through counter-intel, hyperfixation on the masculine ad subject, which excluded. These are people who thought that it was a machismo. Chicano student activism was reborn in the early 1990s. classics of Chicano writing. And we run into this thing again. This is something that white society seems to confound itself with. Back in the 50s and 60s, when people would be on question was always, what 
Negro wants. What does a Negro want? Well, what do you want? In the main, he's no different from you. What do Chicanos want? Ask yourselves, what do you want? Okay, we're going to get a phone call now. Shortly, from our capital correspondent, Mr. D.J. Coleman, waiting on the line. Like I said, we're struggling today because uh, our technology has failed us. Let's listen to this. Let's listen to... Uh, I don't care how you take your coffee. Sorry about that. today oh i'm doing fine i hope everyone on your end is doing okay how are you doing and your family well well um they're all okay um everybody's you know doing the best they can in this uh this coronavirus thing um at first you know it started out oh yeah okay you know we're we're sheltered sheltered in place you know and we stayed home and different and cool and then now it's gone on way too long everybody's having a hard time with it you know yeah that's uh one of the things and uh, the reason that i called is that uh knowing 
first of all, you know, it seems like there's a, a lot of violence, which violence has been around, but it's getting worse. And I guess because everyone is under this pressure of being uh, kept at home, uh, wearing masks, and, and there's so many things that are stressing everybody out. And uh, one of the things that uh, I've been doing to deal with it, um, not overlooking my family, caring about my family, or anything like that, is just as a second way of uh, kind of releasing tension. And one of the ways I found to do that is what I would call tripping. Uh, maybe you've heard uh, people use the phrase, oh, he's just tripping. Yeah, yeah. Well, my tripping is completely different than uh, the way it may have been used. What I do is I trip back in my mind and all the good things and some of the things that have an effect on me in the last 50 years. Yeah, for instance, uh, going across the Golden Gate Bridge on the weekend, coming back from a camping trip, and having my first bite from a uh, tick, which was funny because it, it was something new. Being a person that's always been afraid of uh, rattlesnakes but loved outdoors, I always worried about the rattlesnake, never gave it any thought of such a small insect that had uh, affected me and made an impression on me at the Golden Gate Bridge at, of all places. Uh -huh. um, other things that I do, like I said, as far as tripping, is tripping on it, those experiences of going to the beach, uh, camping out, smelling uh, driftwood. Just burning overnight while we're out there, uh, on the beach. Yeah. The salty air. All of these are pleasant things that, uh, I, like I said, I would consider being uh, called tripping. These help me release the tension from being at home and trying to protect myself from the virus. And, I, and I'm saying that hopefully that uh, people will try tripping sometime themselves. And all of this is attributed to my friends, you, and Mr. Morgan, Charlie Morgan, uh -huh. yeah. uh, Chuck, uh, all of my friends, all in my memory that I pull up of all the good and some of the funny things that happened. Uh, for instance, building a dome on land, on, on uh, some land that one of uh the friends that had owned, uh, that was the first time experience. I go through thinking about that, thinking about uh, my fear again of rattlesnakes, of wild animals, but I wanted to be out there. Hey, <laughs> I wanted to be out in the wilderness. I wanted to experience it. All of these things come back in, in memories, and I, as I said, I'm using the word tripping because I did trip through 30 40 years of my life while being isolated at home and, and not really going out for fear of the, uh, the virus. You know, so that's, that's a, a wonderful right now thing. I just want to say my main thing, the chipping, was all friends. And I really appreciate the friends that I had and will continue uh, thinking and tripping about those things that we've experienced in the past. <laughs> Do you 
re what I remember is it. Do you remember we had some land and, you know, we would go up there, like you say, and build things and, you know, hike around. But I remember how worried I was about poison oak because I, I'm really <laughs> allergic to poison oak. And I, I can't even go near it, you know. I was Once I was out of school for two weeks with a bad case of poison oak, but you... <laughs> walked into the middle of a poison oak patch and wiped it all over yourself. And you didn't even get it. <laughs> you remember that? Oh, uh, yeah, I remember that. And plus, you know, that was one of the things uh, when we went up to uh, Charlie's and uh, that came up again. Uh -huh. uh, I don't know why it is that I don't have... Uh, why I wasn't ever affected by it, but uh, that came up when we were up there uh, visiting Charlie, I think, when he was on uh, his birthday or he just got out the hospital. I can't really remember exactly the reasoning behind us being there, which it was a visit, uh -huh. but uh, that came up then, and I don't know. That was a good thing in my life because everybody else <laughs> had, couldn't be around poison oak, poison ivy, or anything else. My thing was, for some reason, it didn't affect me. Those, those to me, again, is, is good days to trip, and people should take their trips that way, the same way that I'm trying to describe them now and encourage everyone to uh, experience. Oh, they absolutely should. What good advice that is for people instead of there's so much negativity and so much bad feeling around, you know, to kick back and think about the good times. Oh, oh yeah, and there they were some good times, and I, I also became a pest in those good good times. Uh, asking uh, Charlie to uh, sing a song that I had never heard before, but he sung it once, and from that point on, I always wanted to hear him sing that song and just irritate him until I uh, almost forcefully make him sing that song. And it, to this day, it's one of my favorites, uh, and I really appreciate him for uh, doing such a uh, good thing towards me as a friend, and it seemed to have been something that really touched me my whole life. And, and I've always now, it, what makes it funny, again, uh, as far as tripping, when I asked him to, to sing it, he didn't even remember the song. He didn't even remember the words to the song anymore. But I'm still here waiting on him to sing it to me once again whenever we're together. Well, So, Charlie, if you're hearing this, sometimes sing your song for me, please. I'm sure he'll do that. Uh, he called in last week, so we'll have to get a hold of him. Maybe he can come down to the studio here. Yeah, I was listening to him, and he was saying that right now they weren't on the air, so right. hopefully he'll be back on the air soon. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're strict with him. So uh, I guess I'll get off here. I don't want to tie up uh, your program, uh, but Sacramento is still Sacramento. It's still a great place to live, and uh, hopefully everybody will take care of themselves and, and protect themselves from the virus. And again, you take care of yourself, your family, 
Okay. And I'll be thinking of you and all of my friends until I talk to you again. Have a good one, okay? Okay, thank you, and thanks for phoning in with your uh, point of view and that really good information. Okay. All right, and everybody start tripping. Everybody, everybody trip. <laughs> I'll talk to you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Okay, that was... Uh, Earl Coleman, our capital correspondent. We're going to have a caller around 11.30, I think. But uh, I want to try something else. The There's a, a website called Voices of Labor, and what it is is a, uh, a collection of things that happen on that date in history in the labor movement. So here we are on July 25th. Happy birthday to Alexandra. After striking for seven months, New York garment workers won the right to unionize and secure a closed shop. Firing of all scabs, that was in 1890. 15, li 15 living dead women testified before the Illinois Industrial Commission. They were radium girls, women who died prematurely after working at clock and watch factories. And they were told to put small, wet small paintbrushes in their mouths so they could dip them in radium to paint watch dials. A Geiger counter passed over graves in a cem cemetery near Ottawa, Illinois still registers the presence of radium. Now we've got a feature to play. Radium Girls, the messed up truth. turned into a nightmare. This is the messed up truth about the Radium Girls. Radium was discovered in 1898, and it didn't take long for entrepreneurs to see the potential value in its luminescent properties. A few years after it was discovered, William J. Hammer mixed it with zinc sulfide and created a paint. While he didn't patent the invention, Tiffany and company did. The new paint was wildly popular in Europe first, and the people who worked with it would glow as they walked through the streets at night. It wasn't until 1914 that radium-based luminescent paint started to be produced in the United States. By 1921, the main manufacturer had already expanded a few times and moved, changing their name to the United States Radium Corporation and patenting the name Undark for their paint. Other companies started popping up as well, using names like Luna and Marvlite for their paints. They weren't just making paints, they were using those paints too. U.S. Radium hired scores of girls and young women, some as young as just 11 years old, to paint watch dials with the glow-in-the-dark radium-based paint. To make sure the dials got a good coating, the girls were encouraged to put the paintbrush between their lips and twirl it into a point. It was the best way to truly get precise numbers and brush strokes, but with each lick of the brush, they were swallowing radium, which we now know is radioactive. It wasn't long before U.S. radium was even getting military contracts to paint watches and instrument panels, and that meant more work for the girls. Unfortunately, that also meant more exposure to radium. The workers had been assured that the paint was harmless, so they often played games with the paint. It was common for the girls to paint their fingernails and teeth in order to enjoy the glow-in-the-dark properties. Paint our faces up. 
with mustaches and a couple girls painted their ears. And Years later, Harvard physiologist Cecil Drinker did a study to see just how much radium the girls were actually covered in. He discovered that workers would be so covered with the paint and radium dust used everywhere in the plant that they would completely glow. And all along, they were assured it was safe. It's worth noting that this wasn't just a case of a corrupt company telling their employees their working conditions were safe, at least not at first. Radium was thought to be super healthy. In fact, it was often marketed as a cure-all. The radium craze started in earnest in 1904 when L.D. Gardner began marketing a radium-infused health water he called liquid sunshine. Belief in radium's healthy benefits was rooted in a massive misstep in logic. Early experiments using radium to kill cancer cells had been a success. If it could kill cancer, the assumption was that it could kill whatever else was ailing you. Real doctors started experimenting with it as a cure for things like tuberculosis and lupus, while quacks started marketing their own so-called cures for everything from acne and baldness to impotence and insanity. People drank radium water and brushed their teeth with radium toothpaste, and radium cosmetics were all the rage. Children played with toys painted with radium, and performers on the New York stage danced and twirled in costumes that glowed. Radium was in such high demand that prices soared. By 1915, a single gram cost what would be around $1.9 million in today's money. Luckily for consumers, that meant many of the products didn't contain real radium. The radium girls weren't so lucky, though. Very slowly, the workers began getting sick. Some started suffering from chronic exhaustion. For many, it started with their teeth. One by one, those teeth would start to decay and rot. When they were removed, their gums wouldn't heal. In some cases, the jaw would simply disintegrate at the dentist's touch. Bad breath was common. Skin became so delicate that the slightest touch would tear open wounds. Ulcers formed for some, and those that were pregnant bore stillborn babies. It was a variety of symptoms, and when the girls started looking for recompense, that became a huge problem. Attorneys for U.S. Radium argued that with all of these different ailments, they couldn't possibly have the same underlying cause. Unfortunately, there's no way to tell just how many dial painters there were and how many died terrible, painful deaths. Of those we know about, many dial painters were typically in their 20s when they became really and truly ill. They were young women like Margaret Looney, who grew so weak her fiancé would pull her around in a wagon. And when she got so bad and pulled her up to where we used to have the picnic, she couldn't walk, so he just pulled her crumbled, limbs were amputated, spines were crushed under their own weight. The girls became anemic, bedridden, unable to eat. The pain was constant, and in the late 1930s, enough were dead or dying that they got national attention. U.S. Radium first tried to blame the girls' illness on an outbreak of syphilis, and it was years before the girls got their day in court. By that time, many testified from the same beds they would eventually die in, and they became known as the Society of the Living Dead. Companies didn't just try to blame the terrible illnesses on other causes, they absolutely took an active role in trying to cover up the truth. Margaret Looney was one of a family of ten and would cover herself and her siblings with the radium paint. It took about six years for her to reach the end, and when she did finally collapse, she was at work when it happened. She was taken to a company hospital and her family was told she had been quarantined for diphtheria. She died in the hospital at just 24 years old. Her death was swept under the carpets, and it would come out later that doctors had been hired to find out what was wrong with the painters as early as 1925. Those doctors had assured Looney and her co-workers that they were perfectly healthy, despite all the evidence to the contrary. The lawsuit started in the mid-1920s, but it was shockingly difficult to even find an attorney to take the girl's case. Why? When radium painters sued U.S. Radium in 1927, they were told they had passed the two-year statute of limitations for complaints, 
They didn't testify until 1928, and months of delays prompted the newspapers to pick up the story. Those women accepted an out-of-court settlement, and when Ottawa-based painters from the Radium Dial Company tried to sue in 1935, they ran into the same problems. They, however, refused to settle. It was another two years before their case was heard in court, and by then, Catherine Wolf Donahue, one of the lead plaintiffs, had already collapsed at a previous hearing. She gave her testimony from her sickbed, and photos were plastered all over the country's newspapers. They won their case, but it was a hollow victory. The girls were often saddled with massive medical bills, and by the time medical bills and legal fees were paid, the Radium girls got next to nothing for their pain and suffering. Even those that won an annual stipend didn't get much since they didn't live long enough to collect. There was another byproduct of the trial. The girls who were part of the so-called Society of the Living Dead weren't aided by their community. They were shunned. Writer and historian Kate Moore says that in spite of the fact that these were young mothers, wives, and girls who were dying, the communities they lived in just didn't want to acknowledge what was happening to them. After talking to locals and reading countless documents, she found that it was an overwhelming belief that they just needed to be quiet about the whole thing. Why? The jobs paid very well at a time when work was scarce. It was the Great Depression, after all, and locals were afraid that if the Radium Girls won their case, that work would go away. Not all of the Radium Girls died young, but those who did survive struggled with predictably awful health issues. Take Mae Keene, who died in 2014 at the admirable age of 107. She was hired on as a dial painter in 1924. Fortunately for her, though, she didn't like it. When she was taught how to point the brush with her lips, she was revolted by the taste of the Radium paint. Keene said she only worked there for a few days when she was called into the office and asked if she would like to quit. She said yes. However, over the course of her life, she suffered from chronic health problems, including ones that sound eerily similar to those suffered by the girls who died, bad teeth and migraines, and two diagnoses of cancer. As it turns out, dying women and some guilty verdicts couldn't stop the radium paint industry. Catherine Donahue weighed less than 60 pounds when she died before Radium Dial finished appealing their case before the Supreme Court. In 1934, their president, Joseph Kelly, was kicked out of the company, but Radium Dial wouldn't be the last company he opened. After Radium Dial went out of business, Kelly simply moved to a building down the road and reopened as Luminous Processes. He hired a workforce from among the girls who had been put out of work when Radium Dial closed, and he kept them painting for a long time. It wasn't until 1976 that Luminous was fined by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. That commission found that Luminous had been exposing their workers to radiation levels 1,666 times higher than regulations allowed. Assets were shuffled, Luminous closed, and the lawsuits that continued into the 1980s went largely unpaid. The Radium Girls weren't just sick, they were very literally radioactive. Molly McGeeo was exhumed in 1927 in the hopes that her bones would give still-living radium girls the evidence they needed to win in court. Reportedly, when her coffin was lifted out of the ground, her body actually glowed. That wasn't entirely surprising, considering her bones were found to be highly radioactive. Ottawa, Illinois was known as Death City throughout the 1930s. In 1987, the documentary Radium City tried to show just how long-lasting the effects were, in a very graphic way. When one man headed into the Catholic cemetery where many of the Radium girls were buried, the Geiger counter he carried goes nuts. Their remains, six feet down, are still radioactive. With some of the girls, precautions were even taken. Margaret Looney and Catherine Donahue were buried in lead-lined coffins. And yes, devotees of radium-based health products are just as radioactive. Industrialist and golfer Evan Byers was the poster child for a drink called Radiothor and drank several bottles of it a day. Holes formed in his skull, his jaw fell off, and his bones began to crumble. He died in 1932 and was so radioactive that he was also buried in a lead-lined coffin. If you think the legacy of the Radium Girls ended when the companies using radium-based paint closed, you'd be sorely mistaken. 
After radium dial closed, the building was converted into a meatpacking plant. After the meatpacking plant closed, it became a farmer's co-op, and it was finally torn down in 1968. The rubble was used as fill around the city of Ottawa. The building that housed Luminous didn't fare much better. For years after the plant closed, it was also used for storing meat. Eventually, 16 separate sites around Ottawa would become classified as Superfund sites, requiring long-term, intensive, hazardous waste removal. NPR Illinois says that many have been cleaned up, but as of 2018, there was at least one site that still remained a highly radioactive and terrifying legacy of the Radium Girls. Check out one of our newest videos right here. Plus, even more grunge videos about your favorite stuff are coming soon. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the bell so you don't miss a single one. Okay, the shameful story, shameful story of the Radium Girls. Radium wasn't stopped until 1976. Just remember watching... Uh, feature about uh, <clears throat> nuclear energy, a series of videos that the U.S. government made to sell the whole idea of radioactive energy. And they didn't say anything about the radium girls. They were supposed to put the brush inside their teeth. <sighs> okay. We did pass French National Anthem. Here we go. <laughs> Scene is from Casablanca. Okay, the classic scene from Casablanca, where uh, 
where um, Paul Henry leads a group of um, French people in a bar, Rick's bar, uh, in the Marseillaise against a bunch of Nazis. German Nazis are sitting in the bar singing German songs. And uh, he inspires people to uh, play the Marseillaise. You know, very symbolic kind of people. Some people call it uh, propaganda. And I suppose it was in 1942. It was very, very uh, scary times. And we're in pretty scary, pretty much scary times right now. Let's hear what Richard Pryor has to say about it. Pryor is on with a white guy to moderate civil discourse. Probably uh, stop some racism. Stop racism? Yeah. I'm probably afraid of that because then people, people don't hate each other and people start talking to each other and then they start talking to each other and they find out <coughs> who's the problem. Which is? Uh, greedy people. Greedy. Right. I have a couple things I want to ask you. There. Do you do you really think that some of the guys that you dealt with at NBC, no no names, right? Because right. there's lawsuits for that too. That some of these guys really want to promote racism actively, or is it a subconscious? I, I just think it's part of capitalism is to promote racism, uh, right? In order to uh, make things work. If you feel better because you're white and you can get a job. Uh, you use that. I mean, you know, I would. Absolutely. I'm sorry, Jack, but shit. They say, I'm white. I'm going to use yeah, this. Right. Absolutely. Get this job. I'm hungry, you know. But, uh, and that separates people. So they keep people separated, and that keeps them from thinking about the real problem. That's that's as simple as I see it. Probably it's not that simple, but. Now, all right, you and I are about the same age, right? We're in our mid-30s. How long is it going to take before guys who think like you, and I say guys who think like me, people who don't want to have racism in the country, people who don't want to be oppressing any minority, whatever it is, sexual, whatever minority, really get into positions of power and can change things. You can't get in a position of power, it seems, if you think like that. It seems that the only time you get in a position of power is if you like the people that are in power. To me, I mean, that's the way it goes. I mean, people that get to become executives become like the people that were already executives. I don't know, maybe... They go in with good intentions, but... It eats them up. It's like a, a cesspool. You know, it just gets on you and it starts the system levels. Up. Pretty soon it's Is all gone. Is that what a cesspool sounds like? Yes. Okay, that was Richard Pryor. Um, hearing, repeating the... Uh, the statement by Malcolm X that racism and capitalism go hand in hand in his mind. We're going to get a phone call any minute now from the Davis area. I've invited my daughter to call in and offer her point of view on what's going on all around. The Southern Tenant Farmers Union.
another time, a time when black and white got together under common cause. The STFU was founded in Tyronza, Arkansas in July 1934 by black and white tenant farmers and Socialist Party members. The STFU is part of a rich tradition of labor organizing in the Depression-era South. A little bit more on that later. Hello. Hello. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Ladies and How are you? I can I barely said, hear you. My daughter Vita has uh, has called me up. Can you hear me? Yeah, a little better now. Thanks. I'm Thank having a lot I'm of problems too. today with my uh, with my uh, playing playing out through the internet. So I'm sort of stuck here with one mic. <laughs> Anyway, how are you doing? And I appreciate your calling. No worries. Yemen and I are here doing good. Hey, Hello. Hello can to you, Yemen, can you hear too. Us well? Yeah, I can hear you. Great. Um, uh, we're talking today about um, kids returning to school, and I wanted to get your point of view on that. I mean, you're both young people and students. And uh, at an upper level, you know, I guess the state has said the courses will be face-to-face. Uh, -face, uh, no, um, distant. But anyway, what's your take? Uh, what is your take on the fact that the Secretary of Education is ordering teachers and kids back to school in the midst of a pandemic? Well, I personally don't think, obviously, that it's a good idea. And I think that a lot of people are going to be worried and have a lot of anxiety about it, a lot of parents and family members, especially people who all live together in one house and don't know if their child will be coming back and spreading it to them. So it creates a really stressful situation for everyone, and it doesn't really make sense. Yeah, you know, Bill, I was uh... – I was listening to the radio, and some some guy called up and said, "Hey, you know how many schools are there in America?" And obviously, there's thousands of schools, and so just multiply that by the number of students that are there, and multiply that by the family members that they have. And clearly, what you're doing is is committing suicide, you know, essentially. So I feel like personally as well, it's just it's not a good idea at all. And um. I mean, hopefully, you know, we, do, we, we don't have to just gamble and just hope that they, they take back what they're doing and they just take back what they said uh, as, soon as, as soon as possible. What, what, what is it that they, that they talk? What is it that happened exactly? So they're, they're declaring that kids go back to school for good? Yeah, uh, Betsy DeVos and the whole Trump government line is that uh, young kids under 10 years of age don't get COVID as often and don't spread it. And kids, older kids do, though, okay? The bottom line is they want people to go, ba to go back to work. And kids, yeah. workers can't go back to work if their kids, you know, they got to take care of their kids. To say nothing oh, of the yeah. inequality of, 
know, there are some homes where there are people who are teachers homeschooling the kids. There are other homes where the people don't even have uh, uh, internet. So they can't really do, you know, they can't homeschool their kids. You know. I mean, we bailed out the banks, right? So why don't we bail out, you know, the families? And, <laughs> and just for, just until they get it under control and they, they you know, whatever vaccine they want to, you know, come up with or whatever solution they want to come up with, not that, you know, that any vaccine they come up with is the best choice, yeah. and, which is another another problem. You know, so it, it is a problem, but um, this is what government is for, right? And it should it should not be up to families, you know. I think right. they should do virtual schooling, and I think that a lot of more uh, affluent schools and private schools are doing that no matter what, really. And I heard that even uh, Donald Trump's son, Barron, yeah. isn't returning to school in the fall either so <laughs> it's funny because he wants everybody else to return their kids but he's not even doing it with his own son and a lot of i my little cousin he goes to a private school and she's not returning in the fall either uh-huh. so what do you think it'll know. take what do you think it'll take for for parents to send their kids and for teachers to show up for work what would it take I don't know, my, like probably a lot of personal protective equipment and like working outside. Yeah. But it would be way too difficult because when there's lunchtime and everyone would have to take that off to eat, it really wouldn't be feasible in my opinion. And at the end of the day, like it's just not safe. It reminds me of the Challenger uh, takeoff. Do you remember that? No, go ahead. What? what? The one that blew up, uh, the the one that blew up uh, uh, ah, a few seconds after, yeah. There's right. just one little leak in the system, and then it all goes down. So that's essentially they have to either they need to take their time. I think I think the world needs a year off. Yeah, I think it's what you said though that they want the people to just go back to work, and that the whole childcare thing is an issue. Oh yeah, no matter what, they want everybody to go back to work. Uh, yeah, and they want no, to. Um, the Republicans, anyway, want 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 you to sign a release when you go back to work that if you do get sick with the COVID, that you can't sue the company. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, that's really. I mean, ridiculous. They're signing releases to go to to go to these these rallies, rally, so yeah. they'll do anything. I mean, it's it's seriously it's, it's cultish. It's a cult. It's 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 like a cult mentality, you know. Do do whatever the masses. Yeah, the death masses. cult. It, it makes yeah. no sense. Do that. Yeah, really logic. A death cult. Okay, you guys. I want to thank you for calling in. Um, You're welcome. Any any Anytime, last bro. comments? Thanks for your uh, point of view. Thank yeah. you for having us. Wait, uh, just to let you, yeah, the last comment, just to let, uh, let you know what's going on on our end here uh, at UC Davis. So yeah. from what we understand is they're going mostly virtual, um, you know, that I, you know, so most people won't have to come back to school, but certain research sort of related courses and things like that, they're going to need to figure out how to, you know, get into labs and 
lab equipment. Right. Anything they can that's necessary to be in person, they're going to try and do it outdoor. So, you know, they're on top of that, and they said that they're, they won't hesitate to just shut it all down um, yeah. if, if that's what's required. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. you know, as yeah, college so. students, you know, you guys are, are certainly more responsible. You're not going to run around and grab like little kids do, you know, grab each other and... You'd be, su- you'd be surprised here at the fraternity <laughs> oh, row. Um, there's a, a lot of parties. There was a lot of parties after finals, before finals. And yeah. yeah. So. I am amazed. Yep. Yeah. All right, Phil. All right. Thank you. Um, yeah, talk to you guys next week even or right. or sooner. Hopefully sure. sooner. And thanks Sounds again good. for calling. Talk to you later. Take it easy. Have a nice morning. Ciao. Okay, Bye. ciao. Okay, that was um, that was my daughter. And her <coughs> their point of view on the uh, situation in the public schools. I mean, it's going to happen in two weeks. Other things are going to happen too. Workers are left out to dry. Go back to school, go back to work. You can't sue your employer. You can't sue us for forcing you to go back to work. If you catch the COVID, you're on your own. But the econ- the economy need needs you. The economy needs you. As uh, Yemen said, it's a cult. It's a, a death cult. Reminded of the days when uh, white settlers came and and took Indian children to live at the home and work as slaves. Um, that's what's happening. They must be slaves. They must to go back to work. And uh, there's really no way to go back to work safely. Where's OSHA when we need OSHA? I'll tell you, OSHA doesn't exist because generations of governments have defunded OSHA. Talk about defund the police. OSHA is uh, barely existent anymore. There's a whole story there, too. We were talking about the uh, Southern Tenant Farmers Union. I want to finish that story. majority of southern farmers, black and white, were exploited under semi-feudal labor conditions, paying for their land usage with crops and easily subject to the whims of the white landowners. Their plight was exacerbated by the Great Depression and ironically by a highly touted New Deal reform, the AAA. As provisions of the AAA reduce large farmers' need for laborers, the lives of 1930s sharecroppers and tenant farmers grew more difficult. That they built successful unions, often with help from radical organizations, is one of the most inspiring chapters of African-American and labor history. 
Originally, the STFU was formed to protest the eviction of 23 farming families on a plantation near Tyrunza. It grew in scope to fight generally for the rights of sharecroppers, tenant farmers, and farm laborers. Here's some history I'll bet you never, never heard of. By 1936, the union had spread to Texas, Missouri, Tennessee, Oklahoma, and Missouri, and at its height in 1938, claimed over 30,000 members in over 300 separate locals. Their newspaper, The Sharecropper's Voice, described the struggle of the union and the workers they represented. Throughout its history, the STFU was remarkable among tenant farmers and sharecroppers unions in the South for its commitment in theory and in practice to building what was rare for the time and region, rare for any time in any region, hello, a racially integrated union. They were constantly under attack by police planters who invaded union meetings. This happened in California in Pixley with mostly Mexican-American workers. The situation made the STFU far more dependent on northern industrial unions on outside funding and occasional safe refuge. So check it out. That's in Black Past the Southern Tenant Farm Workers Union. Okay. Let's see what else we got. We um, played the Sea Sacred Souls. We didn't get the Who is a Chicano. We'd like that one. Let's see if we can get that one. But it's under, uh, it's under the uh, auspices of the Los Angeles Times, and they don't want to share it with us. I'll see if I can get a hold of that uh, at some time next week, because it's something that uh, a lot of us don't understand, uh, that here in California, Black Lives Matter movement is strong and powerful. And we don't hear about the history of Chicanos, Mexican-Americans. San Francisco Chronicle says, Latinos account for nearly half of 172 people killed by police in California in 2017. A 2015 state law required officials to compile racial and ethnic information annually on police contact with civilians. Next year's report will include data on individuals stopped by police in seven cities and counties 
including San Francisco and by the California Highway Patrol. They cited incidents, violent encounters with individuals, 741 citizens, 172 who were killed, 43.9% were Latino, 30.2% were non-Latino whites, 19.7% were black, and 1.1% were of Asian descent. The people killed or injured by police, 63.9% were between the ages of 21 and 40, while 10% were younger than 21. 91% were male. This is something we have to keep in mind, that the U.S. government and the powers that be In California, in the, in the southwestern part of the U.S., that attack is against Latinos as well, not just blacks. Um, I'm going to read a little thing about the Lemon Grove incident, which was the first time that parents stood up and challenged a racist school board racist schools, the Lemon Grove incident. Mexican students form close to 50% of the student body at Lemon Grove Elementary. This is 1930, 1931. School expected Mexican parents to obey orders, but parents organized, fought back, boycotted the school, and sought legal counsel. Evidence presented in court disproved the trustees' allegations and ruled in favor of the plaintiff, Roberto Alvarez. A decade later, schools desegregated throughout California with Mendez versus Westchester. This was the first successful school desegregation case in the U.S. Principal admits all children except Mexicans Mexican students are sent to an old two-room building, the Caballeriza, something about horses, huh? Trustees argued the decision was based on Mexican children's intellectual inferiority, language skills, and sanitary issues. You can't come to our school because you're not clean enough. Sounds like something that came out of the mouth of uh, Tucker Carlson. Anyway, it's about time for us to leave you. Hope you have a good week and good work. Remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't vote for Jeff Bezos, someone else worked dollar they didn't get. Millions of someone else's. This is the bee reminding you if you don't have a seat at the table where you work, the negotiating table that is, then you're on the menu.
Never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. This is Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Stay tuned for Scott Walker and his flat black plastic show. And have a good week with good work. Are ye on a raft without a pattern? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice. LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit face McRat. <laughs> Anti-Trump is the antivirus or antibody to the Trump virus. We're a global alliance of humans standing up against the Trump brand. Antitrump.com started four years ago on March 19, 2016 with two sketches and a dream for a better world. Nobody thought it was going to be this bad. Most of us probably figured it would just be four more years of the same old... He was a 70-year-old babbling Nimrod. How bad could it really be? Treason is the last of his felonious activities. The Trump brand has hijacked our government and sold Lady Liberty to the mob. We are a leaderless and without the most basic health care systems and community services. COVID-19 is a pandemic, but the Trump brand is the virus. Welcome to the antivirus. Go to antitrump.com and spread the word. Individual politics aren't important. What is important is that we stand together as a unified voice and say enough is enough. That's antitrump.com. 
and their stupid complaints that we requested they send us. Why do we do this? Why, why are we <laughs> None of which matters in this equation because it is his choice to carry such... because it is his choice such horse shit on the fucking train and he was yelling he was like move it bitch move it bitch and uh and uh i wasn't i wasn't i'm just not i'm not moving it you know i've arrived why should i move i don't like what work has been giving us at our free lunches one one five three four zero one nine seven six and it does not spell anything. One one five three four zero one nine seven six. Go for it. Call in, guys.
everybody. Listen to the weekly review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers, activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the weekly review every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. PCRcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? <laughs> it's a cash cock, honey. <laughs>
Looks like we got about a four-car pileup up there on the airline. 